Well, from personal data to home protection, security is big business. So let me ask you a question. Where do you find your security? Right now, our country seems less secure than it certainly has in the past, and it's easy for people to be afraid, and it's easy for people to lose hope. In the chaos of life, and there's lots of chaos in life as it is, and now it seems like there's more than ever, the Lord wants to provide for his people uh, present hope, future hope, and even eternal hope. And naturally, we want to experience that, and trusting faith has to fight. It's not, we're not just passive in it. Trusting faith has to fight to stay focused on the Lord. Trusting faith has to fight to focus on his goodness and, if you will, to celebrate his goodness. Uh, the other night I was, uh, Sunday night I was uh, celebrating God's goodness. I was at a little pond and I was fishing and there was no fish on my side of the pond. And there was two 15-year-olds that I was engaging in a conversation across from the pond and they were catching fish after fish after fish and making me look like the old slacker. But I was just celebrating God's goodness because they were so excited. And I was like, Lord, you're just being so good uh, to these kids. And so there's things that we have to look forward to or look for uh, when we are just looking for evidences of grace of God all, all around us. The Psalm 16 seems to be one of those psalms. I think if I had preached on it prior to this year, I had, would have said that it was written for people in, in other parts of the world, not, not for Americans, but now it's for us too. Uh, so many people this year have lost a loved one. They've lost a job. They've lost uh, a relationship. They've, uh, their health is not good. Uh, they're just very unsure of life. And if that's you, and probably that is most of us, Psalm 16 is for you. So rather than ignoring the pain, this is what I like about the Bible. I know some of the, the TV preachers like to ignore, ignore the pain of life, but rather than ignore the pain of, of, of the way life is, uh, Psalm 16 gives us a path, and it's a path to life, and it's a path to hope. It's a path that goes with God, and it's a path that ends up at God. And for those of you who love the old hymns, I know a lot of you do, uh, Psalm 16 was inspired by John Wesley's, inspired John Wesley's hymn that did, uh, John Wesley was inspired by Psalm 16 in a hymn called Forth in Thy Name. Probably one of my biggest regrets of not growing up with the hymns of the faith. I know a lot of people can just sing them from memory as a kid. And, you know, I usually know the first stanza, and then I have to look up at the screen for the lyrics, but that's okay, no worries. Uh, this psalm is what I guess I might call an anchor psalm. It's a psalm that anchors our hearts and our souls to God. We don't know the circumstances, and I know a lot of times we want to know the circumstances. I like it better when we don't know the circumstances, because then I can just take the teaching of God's Word, and I can import it into the circumstances of my own life. And unlike many of David's psalms, you know, a lot of his psalms are really desperate, and even if we don't know exactly what's going on, there seems to be a clear emergency. Not so in this psalm, yet... Uh, the, that's an important point because I think sometimes we might feel if life is going okay that we don't need to train 
or be ready for when life is not okay. But we do need to be ready for that. And the time to get ready for that is when things are going better. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Let's say you had some damage on the outside of your house. When's a better time to fix it? On a nice, clear, sunny day or in the midst of a tornado? So, so it's so much better for us to really get our lives right with God and, and get in the place where he is our default, that we go to him in all ways and all things when life is a little bit more calm than when life is a little bit or a lot out of control. So the heading of the psalm says, a, a mictum of David. So you say, what in the world is a mictum? Well, Bible scholars are really not sure of the meaning. Uh, some say it means inscription. Some says it means cover. Some say it means golden. Some say it means precious. Not, not weird precious like Gollum and Schmeagol in, in Lord of the Rings, but it could mean any one of those things or maybe something else. Inscription, cover, golden, precious. It begins, Psalm 16.1, David writes, uh, preserve me. Another version says, keep me safe or protect me. Another version says, watch over me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Another version says, for in you I take refuge. So I've entitled tonight's message, Confidently Resting in God's Security. Confidently Resting in God's Security. So when he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust, we have both a request and, preserve me, and a profession of faith, in you I put my trust. It could be that he's saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm asking you for my continued protection. I want you to continue protecting me day in and day out. And the Bible writers are very, very realistic. Though they think they, they might think we are safe now, things can turn very quickly, can't they? And ask some of the people in some of the largest cities in our country right now in which things have turned very quickly. I was reading an article today how those cities right now have the most people leaving and the least growth in the cities. And it's really a shame because they're some of the great, wonderful cities of, of our country. For the Bible writers, they often saw a great potential that we could end up suffering and that's one of the many reasons why they are constantly teaching us that we should be always trusting in the Lord and always seeking refuge in the Lord. In other words, you never know when everything's just going to fall apart. You, you never know when things are just going to happen. Because there's another potential there as well, not just, go, not just things falling apart. There's a potential in all of us. And we're, we talked about this a few weeks ago, really foolish if we think otherwise. There's a big potential in all of us to go astray. And so here David really sort of just gives us God's part and our part. David says, Lord, would you please protect me? Would you protect me physically? Would you protect my soul? Would you protect my heart? And then he also puts in our part. Lord, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to find my refuge in you. Or as we've been studying on Sundays over the summer, we're, stu we're studying on Sundays over the summer, I'm going to abide in you. So, so what, does, what does that trust or what does that refuge look like on earth? Now, we could do 
months on this, but we'll just limit ourselves to what's in this psalm. And one thing, we didn't put up an outline, but if, if you want to take notes, you, you might want to say the first thing that David does is he makes a commitment. He makes a commitment to the Lord. The first one actually is a specific commitment to God. Look at verse 2. He says, O my soul, you have said to the Lord. Another version says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Another version says, I have no good apart from you. That is not the way most people think. So, so David is, is declaring to God, he's making a commitment to God, you are my Lord. That's my commitment to you. And, and I realize that within inside of me, there's no real goodness, comparative goodness, compared to you, God. You know, compared to the worst of the world, maybe you could say yes, but, but you are my goodness. That's my commitment to you. So David knows, above all, that God is good. And, and in essence, he's saying to God, you are really, Lord, all of the good that I need, therefore, you are my Lord. Therefore, my heart's commitment, my heart's delight, we'll talk about that in a bit, is in you. Trusting God, what does it mean to trust God? Well, we'll probably, every time we talk about it, I think we come up with a different definition, but that's because I don't want you to be locked into one thing. I'll, I'll say in David's world right now, trusting God is acknowledging God as the all-sufficient one, that, that God is everything, and out of that, out of the fact that God is the all-sufficient one, being willing to obey him. Not because he has to, although sometimes we obey God, we're like, well, I know this is the right thing to do, and I'm going to do it, but because he wants to do it. This is a commitment to turn from the ungodly things of this world um, and to find his delight in God. It's a commitment we make uh, to the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So in a sense, very, in a very similar fashion, David is saying to God, you are my Lord, you are my God, you are my Savior, you are my Master, you are my everything. In, in Psalm 73, uh, in verses 25 and 20, uh, 24 and 25, Asaph, now if you know who Asaph is, a lot of people say, well, Asaph was a worship leader. I prefer to think of Asaph a little differently. I prefer to think of Asaph as a theologian who just so happened to be a worship leader. And, and he writes this, uh, Psalm 73, 24 and 25. Uh, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. So he, he, David has a commitment. So it's just maybe a couple things, three things we want to talk about. But point number one, commitment actually has three parts. So the first is a commitment to God. The second is a commitment to the Lord's people. A commitment to the Lord's people. Look at verse 3. As for the saints who are on earth, and saints are just the people who've put their trust in God, uh, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So here's something that we really 
we talked about it a little bit over a lot over the summer, and to realize this, that the soul that loves God loves the people of God. The soul that loves God loves the people of God. The soul that delights in God finds its delight in the people of God. You know, like we call, the church is called the bride of Christ. So we don't, we don't say, you don't call up some guy and go, hey man, love to have, we're having a you know, couple's night over, love to have you come over, but don't bring your wife, man. We can't stand her. We don't, we don't say that. We don't, we don't love Jesus and hate his bride. So, so if, you, if you love God, you love his people. If you love being with God, you love being with his people. And so this is a fact of faith. And you say, well, this is Old Testament, Pastor Jim. There's a thousand years before Jesus lived. We don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He said, we give thanks to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. You see, when you experience the love of God and when you love him, it overflows into love, into care, into concern for his people. Now, I can already feel the pushback coming through the camera. Is this always easy? No. Not much in life that's worthwhile is easy. Is church at times aggravating to people? Yeah, it is. Being honest with you. Being family, right? Friends, it can be. Um, are, does church sometimes have whiners and complainers? Yes, at times, yes. Sometimes it's the pastor. Right? And so we all can fall prey to, to that. And, and this is probably going to not go over so well with some people, but did you know that the people who often complain the most usually do the least? And the people who say, well, nobody cares about me, tend to be people who really don't care about other people. And it is possible to love and care for others your way out of misery, out of, out of, out of the, 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 the prison of, of only being about yourself. But you see, here's the thing. Even if church is difficult, even if people are difficult, God does not give us a pass on this. I mean, as David says here, if he is your Lord, you love his people. And dare I go so far as to say, if you don't love his people, now you're going to have more friendships with some people than others. I get that. But if you don't love his people, something is definitely off in your relationship with God. And it's something you need to search your soul and seek counsel on or seek the word of God on. And you know what? You just try it. You, you, you love people. You say, oh, I don't feel like it. Act loving and usually your emotions will come in tow. This past weekend, Jesus commanded us, we looked at, to love one another. If you don't, and we, we, we went to a scary verse in 1 John chapter 4. I'll yank out a scary verse in 1 John chapter 2. Verse 4, he writes, He who says, I know him, the Lord, and does not keep his commandments, Jesus commanded us to love one another, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, 
How important are the people of God to God? Well, important enough that he gave his son to die on the cross. Important enough that in verse 3 he calls them excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So no matter what we think of other followers of Jesus, and please listen to this, if you're really down on yourself, no matter what you think about yourself, if it's not good, the Lord thinks differently. The Lord says, all those who've put their trust in me, they are my delight. The people of God, individually and collectively, are the apple of God's eye. They were the ones that were worth dying for. We'll talk more about this, that this weekend. And who are we to think less of one another? And who are we to think less of being adopted than, than we are as sons and daughters of God, adopted into the kingdom of God. I'm not saying we walk around with a bravado, but we do walk around grateful with a heart of gratitude of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So we had the commitment to God. We had the commitment to the people of God. And now we come to the third commitment. He says, Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God, their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. So what's the third commitment David makes? After God, after the people of God, David says, I'm going to separate myself from following false gods. No matter how much around me people are following false gods, I'm going to separate myself from that. And he says here that if you don't do that, that is a sure way to sorrow. So David will not participate in false god services. David's not going to let the name of false gods even cross his lips. They are, if you will, to quote Mr. Wonderful, they are dead to him. What is a god? A god is anything that replaces the true and living God. So if you, whatever you love more than God, whether it's tangible or intangible, you might, you might love you know, money more than God. That's a, that's a false god. You might love uh, you know, respect or something like that more than God. That is a false God. You may love a person more than God. That is a false God. There, some of those are bad things. Some of those are good things. I mean, a lot of people worship their career or they worship their family. And, and, and while the first two commitments to God and to the people of God, they're, they're very important. But here's what's really important about it. Don't reverse the order. Don't let people be more important to you than God. That is idolatry. That, that, that is false worship. And, and, and don't, don't live your life through people. You know, I, I, I know a lot of people who live their life through religious leaders. I was talking to a friend recently, and he's like, uh, I'm good, man. I, you know, I'm on a first-name basis with the priest at my church. I'm like, dude. Dude, two of my aunts were nuns. One of my uncles was a priest. I wouldn't have known Jesus if he walked in the front door years ago. I mean, that is not going to get you to heaven. Or sometimes, you know, you say, well, that's the, those people, but you know, that's the Catholic people. But you know what? Protestants are guilty of the same thing. 
I've had many people say, well, Pastor Jim, this is your church. This is not my church for two reasons. Number one, it belongs to God. And number two, I don't want it to be my church. Why? Because it belongs to God. This is Christ's church. And so we, we have to acknowledge you know, when we're worshiping things that are not um, you know, the true and living God. Now you say to yourself, why would David write this? He lives in the promised land. He lives in Israel. He lives in Judah. He lives you know, with the, among the people of God, the chosen people. Why would he say this? Well, because within any group of people who claim to be the people of God, there are false people of God who are worshiping other things who are worshiping other gods. Just imagine you're in an agricultural society, and you know, you look over there, and a couple mountains over there, oh, there's the Canaanite farms, man. Look, it looks like it's raining over there, and their god's bringing rain. You're tempted to say, well, why don't we pray to their god? Maybe it's going to rain too. And so, or you just, you know, you see somebody gets a brand new car, and they pull in the, the yard, and you're thinking, the, the driveway next door, and you're thinking, i got to have one of them. And so you're, you're working, you know, all the time just to get that car. You know, that's, a, that's, a false, that's a false god. I one time we were at this thing, and this guy pulls up in his, in his big yellow car, and, he, and you know, he parks it in the far back corner of the parking lot, and, and he parks it diagonally, and we're all looking, and I, I just blurted out. He didn't hear it. I was like, looks like the golden calf in the corner of that parking lot over there, man. And so we have to be really careful that we don't fall into that, and we can all fall into that. And, and this has always been the case. And notice it says, David says here, they hasten after another God. I mean, they run after this other God. They, their faith is totally compromised. Yet, yet to, to, the, to, the, to the shame of many of us, really, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to anybody else, I would say that we do not hasten to the Savior the way people hasten to false gods. I mean, people sometimes, they're just making a beeline for certain things, and we kind of can be kind of indifferent. And, and, and so sometimes I see people who they have their thing that they love more than God, and they're so excited about it. And um, it's, just a, it's just a shame that we're not as excited about the Lord. Without a careful study of the Word of God, without practicing the presence of God in our lives, um, a desire to hold on to the word of God, it's easy to run after who or what is false. And we're marketed to do that. It's in commercials, it's in magazines, it's in, it's in all kinds of stuff. I mean, now they, they say that we're in a season where you know, retail stores are not as popular, so online shopping is you know, becoming you know, super, super big. I don't know about your house, man, but all the catalogs, I mean, please stop. I just keep writing back to them. Take me off your mailing list. Take me off your mailing list. Save a tree. Take me off your mailing list. But, but there's just so many different things that we are marketed to, to fall into, and a lot of them are good things. But a, you can take a good thing, and you can do the wrong thing with it. And so David says here in the middle of this verse, I will not offer nor take their names upon my lips. He says, I will not. I am determined to remain true to God. He, he makes a vow. He says, this is not going to happen to me. So what's the result of the commitment? The commitment to God, the commitment to people, the commitment to not uh, go after false gods. It's very interesting. Next for him, the result of the commitment is contentment. Contentment. 
don't know about you, but I think, you know, of, of, of some of the top five things I would like to experience in my life, and certainly near the top, is contentment. I just like to be content. And uh, that doesn't mean that we don't have this kind of angst in us to, to see the name of Jesus Christ glorified in the world, um, but, but to just to be content and, and to not always want more you know, or to be content with just, just where we are in life. And he says, verse 5, O Lord, you are the portion. The English Standard Version says, you are my chosen portion of my inheritance and my cup. Another version says cup of blessing. Let's just stop right there for a second. Verse 5 is the complete opposite of verse 4. He, verse 4 is you're chasing after all this stuff that's going to make you happy. So he's, he's made a, a commitment to not chase after that. And then he says, by, by making God my cup of blessing, by making God my portion, that he is, he is making me content. And so he's really saying to the Lord, listen, Lord, you, I know you are what sustains me. I know you are my portion. You are, you are all I need. I think sometimes, you know, we talk about portion control and stuff like that. And sometimes I think people think that Christians just got a small portion of, of the goodness of this life. And we have to really, if, if, I'm not saying we have to convince them otherwise. We have to focus more on letting God be our portion so we are living a life that makes it obvious that God is enough for all of us. And so those who, here he, he just says that, you know, that Lord, you are my portion. So the truth is that those who follow false gods have no special blessings from God. And, and those special blessings are given to his servants. And this Sunday he's going to talk about it. Lord, the Lord Jesus is going to say to the apostles, listen, I call you friends now. You know, I don't just call you servants. I call you friends now. And I'm telling you what my father has said to me. I'm giving you insider information and that the rest of the world is not going to be getting. And interesting, David calls these blessings my inheritance and my cup. Now, scholars debate, is it daily provision or is it the future? Well, why can't both be true? If you made me pick one, if you put me up against the wall and said, I'm going to shoot you if you don't pick one, I'll pick one, I'll pick daily provision. But, but why can't it be both? It's also possible he's just simply saying, and, and we have to remember that the ancient world was very different than we are concerning food. I mean, my goodness, I, you go to the supermarket and just, you know, you go for peanut butter and there's like 80 brands. Salad dressing, it's like, it's the whole aisle. What's, what's going on with this? For them, to eat was a big deal. And, and so here he's, he's just saying to the Lord, perhaps, you are my food and my drink. You are, Lord, what refreshes me. You are what sustains me. You are what keeps me. You are, you are the one who energizes me. Without you, I'm just dead in the water. So we continue with this contentment. Let's continue to look at verse 5 and 6. He says, O Lord, you are my portion of my inheritance and my cup. And then he says, you maintain my lot. Another version says, you hold my future. Verse 6, the lines, and the idea is the boundary lines, have fallen to me in pleasant places. 
Yes, I have a good, uh, some inheritance, some versions say, I have a beautiful or I have a delightful inheritance. So what David now is, is moving from, really, when he, the way he, the language that he uses, he's not just talking about the, the land he has or the, the things that he has. He's talking about God's sovereignty. He's talking about God's control over the affairs of his life. And he says, you maintain my lot. You're the one who makes sure that my life goes the way it needs to go. So now this is an expression for, for property boundaries. You know, if you're a surveyor, you know what that is. You have to do property boundaries. And it's interesting because people buy property and they always have to have a survey done. And you're like, but somebody had one done already and then somebody had one done before that. But yet they still have to do them again. They have to make sure that, that, that someone has maintained the boundaries, didn't move the, the flags or, or, or the posts or something like that. And so verse 6 seems to indicate that the Lord sets the boundaries of our lives. Very interesting. You know, we, we saw in Job that there's nothing in our lives that God doesn't sign off on. That somehow that anything that comes into our lives, uh, you know, it, it, God has somehow allowed it or approved of it. Now, you know how it goes. Something bad happens to you and one of your well-meaning friends comes along and says to you, you know, God works together all things for good or those who love him according to his name, Romans 8, 28. And, and, you know, that's one of those verses that it sounds great coming out of your mouth, but not so great going into your ears when you're not feeling well uh, or not doing well. But I think a lot of times we have to look at it in terms of the entirety of our life, that God is taking all things together and he's working all things for good. You know, there's tragedy, that ha real tragedy that happened in people's lives. And the worst thing you can tell the people is that, oh, this is really good. That's like, they're like, what do you want, crack? I mean, really, seriously. And I, and I don't blame them. I don't, I don't blame them. And so here he's telling us that the Lord sets the boundaries of our lives. It doesn't mean that everything in our lives is going to go great. Uh, because in verse 1, what did he do? He asked for protection. But, but what does he say here? He's acknowledging to us that God sets the limits on what's going to happen. So there's the limits of what's going to happen in terms of not great things, but there's another limit perhaps that God sets, and we're not really aware of it because our nature is to push the limits and our, to cross the boundary lines. That's why in verse 4 he told us that's going to produce sorrows. So... I think, though, in reality, he's probably making a very, very firm uh, you know, discussion about property. But the interesting thing about property in the, in the Bible, it meant everything to the people. The land was worth everything to the people. But Numbers 18, God says to the priests, I'm your portion and I'm your inheritance. And in Exodus 18.6, God tells his people that you are a kingdom of priests. And so, therefore, it's only the true people of God that experience the pleasant and good inheritance of God. Um, why is that? You say, I, dude, I'm looking around and I got nothing compared to everybody else. I mean, just, it's just, I feel like I'm on the short end of the stick every single time. 
But the word of God consistently points out to us that the best inheritance you and I can ever have is the Lord himself. And, and, and God really wants us to, to see that. And I find in a lot of people, it's interesting that, that when they come to that place, they're, they're a lot more content. They're, they're freed up to really to serve God. And, and sometimes some people end up making a lot of money because they're not so worried about losing it. And so they're willing to take risks and they're willing to do different, different things. But to get to the Lord as our inheritance and to truly enjoy him this side of glory, we have to flee idolatry in every form. You know, it's interesting, uh, despite what the prosperity preachers say, when you read the Gospels, it's obvious that Jesus was poor. And it's very, very obvious. I mean, when he says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, the prosperity guy goes, well, he didn't have a mansion in that town. But that, that's kind of really stretching it. That's really stretching it. So he, he was financially poor. He had people who supported him. He was a poor carpenter from Nazareth. But here's the interesting thing. He never complained about it. He absolutely never complained about it because Jesus understood and experienced true riches. And true riches is what? A vibrant relationship with God. And, and when you have a vibrant relationship with God, that will keep discontentment out of your heart. It will keep, it will keep throwing it out and it will keep love for God and love for people inside. That's what a vibrant relationship with God will do. And let's be honest, we are, we are a discontented people. And many people in the past have tried various ways to work their way out of discontentment. It could be work, it could be pleasure, it could be partying, it could be anything, you hobbies, it could be anything you could imagine. And, and it's interesting that Many people have done, especially when it comes to work, they've tried to work their way out of their discontentment. And now people go, well, if you just give me everything, I'll be content. I don't think so. I don't think so. Because we are by nature very discontented with this life. That, that well-known quote from Augustine, thou hast made me for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds itself in thee. Verse 7, uh, I will bless. Now, most of your versions say praise. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on the, on the versions that say praise. A lot of times I pick on my version. This time I'm going to pick on your version if you have a different version. So I will bless, I will praise the Lord who has given me counsel. A lot of versions say who counsels me. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Uh, other versions say my heart instructs me even at night or my conscience instructs me at night. So God's counsels and God's directions when followed will bring comfort and contentment to our heart and to our soul. Now, that doesn't mean, again, everything's going to go right. But you're going to know deep down inside you're doing the right thing. And a lot of times the right thing is not the easy thing. The right thing is the tough thing. And so how does the Lord counsel us? 
Well, according to the word of God, the Lord counsels us through the word of God, and it is in the word of God that we get the trustworthy counsel of God. Now, a lot of people have a problem. They, they go to 20 people for, for counsel, and they're just they're counsel shopping. They're trying to find the person who's going to tell them that they want to hear. That is not a good thing to do. Speak to people who you know are, are wise in the word, and, and you see that, that, that wisdom is being manifested in their own lives. Not, not just, they might know, lots of people know lots of Bible, but they don't have any wisdom. And so we want to be, we want to be careful about that. And so, so we, people, we get our counsel from the word of God and not just twisting it to say what we want. And we say this often, we want to be really careful about saying that we're led to do something. Why? Because when we say that we're being led to do something, we're basically saying, well, God told me this, or God said this. And this is something I would really caution all of us in. Don't say God said something he didn't. Don't speak for God. Don't put words in God's mouth that he didn't say. And here's the reality of it all. God doesn't make bad decisions. Now, do I believe that you could be led of God down a dead-end street? I do. You say, well, can you prove it? Moses coming to the Red Sea. <laughs> okay, that's a dead-end street, right? And so, and, and sometimes people, you hear stories of, you know, missionaries. They go off into some land, and, and they get killed by people. And, and, but, but there's more there than ever meets the eye. But don't put... if. You know, a lot of people swear, oh, God led me to do this. God led me to do this. And then they're in it a short time. It gets a little bit rough. And they're like, oh, no, no, God doesn't want me to do this anymore. You're like, what is he? Is he like short-sighted God or something like that? So don't, don't put words in God's mouth. And, and here's, a, here's a thing that when it comes to waking up in the middle of the night, uh, without the peace of God in your heart, you're probably going to toss and turn a lot. And, and, and sometimes that is an indicator to you that, that something is wrong. Now, some people just have sleeping problems. I understand that. But, but you know, sometimes you're just going to have that. And it was interesting that we're doing this psalm today because um, even sometimes late at night, if you allow the Lord, he can instruct you and bring peace to your heart. Um, I've got a lot personally in my life going on right now. I've got so many projects I'm trying to juggle, and um, I actually can juggle. And, and, and the key to juggle, that's why you go to college, I think. But now, I'll just think of all the kids staying home from college who are not learning how to juggle. What a crime. And so, but, but I feel like I'm, I'm juggling now, and it's, I feel like it was when I first started, I'm only catching one instead of being able to keep everything moving because there's just too much too much stuff to do. So I woke up last night about 3 o'clock in the morning, and man, my brain was like, with all the stuff that I had to do. And I just caught myself, and I said, Lord, I, I need more sleep. I, I need at least another two hours sleep. I had set my alarm for 5, and I said, I, you know, I need more sleep, and I can't do anything about any of those things now. And so I'm just going to close my eyes and I'm going to give them to you. And I'm going to ask you to give me rest. And I closed my eyes and I was right out. And one way, good way to fall asleep is to pray. 
Satan will help you get to sleep. And sure enough, I wake up and I look at the clock right after closing my eyes at 3. I got to get up at 5 and it's 4.58. And you know, I don't know about you, I find it a lot easier to, to get up when you wake up on your own than when your alarm clock wakes you up. And so I just zipped out of bed and I was like, zippity doo here we go, man. This is a great, great day. Some of you are like 5 o'clock in the morning, right? But, you know, that's, that's my time. So, but, but really, to, to, to really to, to trust God and, you know, sometimes you just lay your head down on the pillow and you just say, well, God, thanks for this day. You know, I mucked this up. I messed that up. I, I have to do it sitting up because as soon as I hit the pillow, I fall asleep. But, but I'm like, this wasn't good, and or I, I could have had a better attitude, or I wish I could be more productive tomorrow or something like that. But thank you for breath. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my church. Thank you for Jesus. And, and, and just, you know, let God minister to you while, while you sleep. You know, the counsel of God, I think, for us, especially in a church like ours, where we continue to study the Bible verse after verse, you know, line after line, the counsel of God is easy to take for granted. And, and sometimes I think we stray from it because we take it for granted. And, um, you know, we end up in, in a bad place. And that, that's, that's a sad thing. I've actually found the, the better way for me to avoid the bad place, and this is going to sound totally bizarre, but sometimes I take a trip down bad memory lane, and I just think of the times when I just didn't trust God or before I knew God, and I'm like, oh, I do not want to go back to that life. I, no way do I want to go back uh, to that. So David's not just aware of God's counsel. He's praising God for his counsel. And, and you know, it's, I often say to myself, Lord, I, I, I need the counseling of your word. And when you are counseled by God's word, you will find contentment in God's word. You'll find contentment in God. And you'll find contentment in obeying the Lord. In this way, uh, this is, again, odd. Difficult times can really develop our relationship with the Lord as, as you sit at his feet, as you sit under his counsel, it's amazing how often he turns worry into worship. How often you, you think about something you were concerned about even yesterday, and you're like, oh, that, that's not so bad anymore. That's, that's working out a lot better. Something else here worth mentioning, and I'll pick on the Bible verses now, uh, Bible versions. It begins verse 7 where he says, I will bless now, most versions say, I will praise the Lord. So he says, I will bless the Lord. Most versions say, I will praise the Lord. And it, it may seem hard to believe, but bless is more literal, and bless is a much better translation. And the reason I think we, we like to put in praise is because the idea of praising the Lord to us is very, very, it's obvious. It's, it's something we, we can relate to. It's like, I can praise your name, even though sometimes people coming into church look like they're half asleep and they're not really praising God, but, but I can praise your name. But what seems odd to us, we all know that God can bless us, but what seems odd to us is that we can actually bless the Lord, that we can actually minister to God. We can, we can serve him, we can, we can bless him. 
You see, we, we praise God. We praise him for his infinite being. We praise him for his holy perfection. We praise him for his wonderful works. But in Hebrew thinking, there was much more. They wanted to give back to God. And so, and so they would think, oh, God has blessed me. I want to bless him. Did you ever have that? Somebody does something for you and you think, oh, wow, man, I want to do something for them. Not because I feel like an obligation to that. I know they did it just, you know, that they wanted to bless me. That's great. But I want, a, I want an opportunity to bless them, to, 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 to show them how much I appreciate them and how much I love them and how much I, I care for them. And so in Hebrew thinking, they would be like, we want to, God blesses us, man. We want to bless him. We want to bless him. Think about that now as we start to talk about, you know, church and stuff like that. Think about that, you know. Don't don't I know I, I get on this on this soapbox a lot, but you know, if you come in 15 minutes late all the time and and you're you know you're half asleep, are you really blessing God? You know, come in and you know so you can talk to your friends after the service and and come in and 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 praise the Lord and just bless his name. Just just bless his name and say, I'm so thankful for all you've done for me, and I just want to throw some blessings back uh, at you. So commitment leads us to contentment, and that leads us to the third thing. It leads us to confidence. Now, confidence in God is so important in pressing on in faith. So very, very important. Look at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Another version says, I've set my eyes, or another version, my mind, or I am set on him always. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. Now, what, what does that mean, he is at my right hand? Well, he's right close to me. You might think of he's there to help me. He's there to defend me, either physically or like an attorney, right? He, he is, he's there with me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Another version says, I shall not be shaken. Why? I'm confident that he is right by me. I'm confident in that. Therefore, what's it there for? Because the Lord is close... My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Another version says, my whole being rejoices. Another says, my spirit rejoices. My flesh, the idea is my body, will also rest in hope. Uh, or, or another version says, it dwells securely or rests securely. So you just sit there and so he says, I'm going to dwell in hope. Now remember verse 1? Verse 1, he seemed like he was kind of in trouble. He said, preserve me, O God. But So how can, how can David have such incredible confidence? Here's the secret. He just told us by setting the Lord before his eyes, by constantly having the Lord out in front of him, David senses the presence of God close to him. See, if you never think about God, you're never going to sense him close to you. See, at this point, not even death scares David. 
I love the confidence. I love the, the statement he makes. I shall not be moved. I shall not be shaken. Why? Because the Lord is with me. The Lord is at my right side. I have a friend who says to me often, actually a few, but one in particular, we have this little banter and they say, well, the Lord is with you, Jim. And I go, the Lord is with you too. For our part, this requires, we just said it, an awareness of his presence. And here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not super glad you're watching with us tonight or whenever you're watching, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I find that when I know it and when I believe it, that leads me into the experience of it. Now, you might say, but what about when I don't experience it? Then I would say this, just know it and believe it. Just know it and believe it and, and let it fill your future with hope. Because of David's faith in the closeness of God, this is a reality for a follower of Jesus. He says in verse 9, My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. You see how that comes out of his commitment to God, his contentment in God, and now his confidence in God? It produces a gladness in him. Verse 10 is a very, very important verse. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. What Sheol? Sheol is the realm of the dead. Nor will you allow your holy one, some versions say your faithful one, to see corruption. Some versions say to see decay. Now, a thousand years later, that will, this verse will be quoted in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13. Now, you could preach this entire psalm from the position of Jesus. I tend not to do that because I tend to want to say, well, if I'm living in David's time and I read this, how would I think of this? Then when I read the New Testament and I see this verse is quoted, then, I, then I'll put the pieces of the puzzle together. David is confident that not even the grave can detach him and isolate him from the presence of Yahweh. He says it right here. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. For those who put their trust in God, those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, death will not be the end of our relationship with God, just the opposite. Death will increase our relationship with God. And it's, it's often worth reminding us, and this is kind of the stuff I love about the Lord. You know, death is the result of sin. And so you would think the wages of sin is death. That's what it says in the scriptures. And so you think that if God was this vindictive God that some people think he would, does, he would be like, wow, there you go. The wages of sin is death. There you go. But death is also how God brings his children home. And so in that sense, that's why it says in the scriptures that, you know, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. I did a funeral one time, and um, it was an interesting funeral because uh, it was a woman who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, and basically everybody that was there was a Jew, and so they 
there was a pastor that was there that was a converted Jew, and, and he told them that, um, you know, he preached Jesus to them. And boy, you could have fried an egg on the people's heads. And I preached on that verse from the Old Testament that blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints because I had walked in the room right after the woman had passed. And you know, I talked, I talked, I talked, and I ended up at Jesus. And the people were coming out, shaking my hand, thanking me for a beautiful service, just because of the not trying to be in their face with Jesus, but just trying to really tell them that this is how God brings his people home. Yes, death is a horrible, horrible thing from our vantage point, but God brings his people home that way. Now, this quotation was used in the book of Acts to show a very important thing, that, that King David did die, but the, but the promise of the covenant, his descendant, the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, was the Lord Jesus. And notice here that the language switches. David's talking about me and my. And then all of a sudden he says, to your holy one. It seems to be a different way of speaking. And Acts 2.24 says that death could not hold Jesus in the grave. Now, did David know this a thousand years ahead of time? I don't know, but I think not. I think a lot of times the, the prophets, and David was a prophet, right? He was a prophet and he was a king. He was not a priest. But he, Jesus was the only one who fulfilled all the three of those offices, Old Testament offices. But, but I think a lot of times that they were writing things that maybe they could have a personal application to, but they didn't per se know exactly what they were writing. You say, well, I know. I think they knew exactly what they were writing. Well, Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesies of the grace that would come to you. Now, most versions add this, and they searched and inquired carefully. They were writing, and they were trying to figure out. They're, they're searching and inquiring of God. What does this mean? What does this mean? Verse 11, Searching what and what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So they didn't fully understand what it was that they were writing about. Now, we come to the closing verse. Sometimes people say, I need a life verse, man. I need a life verse. Here's a good one. Here's a good one. Verse 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, so the, the path of life begins here. We, we turn to God, we put our trust in Jesus Christ, and he takes the faithful on to glory. Man, have we come a long way from verse 1. In, in verse 1, he's saying, preserve me. Now, he says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's saying, I'm seeing the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. We see, and what I love about this is we don't get the impression, I certainly don't get the impression, I don't think you do either, that this path is unreachable. We don't get the impression that this path is unattainable. This path is available to all who put their trust in, verse 10, the Holy One. Our part is to focus on living 
in the joy of God's presence now and to anticipate the pleasures of eternity. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's faith. That is the essence of our faith. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So God will bring with Jesus those who sleep, those who die in Jesus. Now, some of you might be less than pleased that David didn't know that verse 10 would be definitely Jesus a thousand years later. But when you think about it, by him writing that and not knowing that, it actually demonstrates more remarkable faith. If that's the case, David logically reasoned out that if God was watching him in this life, then certainly God would watch out for him in death. That's, that's faith, man. That's big faith. You see, David knew what he wrote in Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one whom God has saved. He knew that. And we certainly have an advantage over King David. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promises of the New Testament that death will have no hold on you. And when we know these things, this is how, no matter how crazy this world gets, we can confidently rest in God's security. Well, let's pray.